0: One of the um, things that always shows us that we're coming towards the end of the year is when the newspapers start printing a list of celebrities who've passed away during the last 12 months. They've left, presumably, a body of work of some sort behind them. In the case of some film actors, they may have been recreated by more or less convincing CGI but they're not still physically with us. But when Jesus says in verse 16, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a while you will see me, he is promising that his followers will see him after his resurrection. He will return bodily to his followers, he remains with us by his spirit, and he will return to us again and so the disciples haven't quite got this what are they what does he mean they ask how long is a little while why will these things happen because he's going the little while until jesus' arrest would be a matter of hours till his resurrection 3 days Whilst we wait for his return again, we don't know how long this little while will be, but we do know that it will be very short compared to the eternity that we will one day spend with him. And in verse 19, Jesus knows the questions that they're asking each other, and he asks them rhetorically, of course, what they're talking about. God knows. The very human questions that we ask ourselves when we don't understand what life is doing to us or to others. When bad stuff is in the news as it so obviously is at the moment. We're not always given the explanation, at least not in the time frame that we'd like it. But we do know that the Jesus who came back from death Is always alongside us. And so Jesus doesn't give them a pat explanation. He doesn't say, okay, X is this, Y is this, Z is that. But instead, he points them to a joy that he's going to give them when the separation of the crucifixion is over. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices, he tells them in verse 20, but your grief will turn to joy. And when Jesus died on the cross, his human enemies rejoiced that this challenging troublemaker had gone. Hell itself rejoiced while it could, but then Jesus came back. And the disciples had to wait for that promised joy until the resurrection and live through those three seemingly endless days, feeling nothing but defeat and the shame of denial and flight. And whilst we know that our joy will be complete one day in the future when Christ returns again, we've not been left in the meantime with nothing, with just a, a grim stoicism, a stiff upper lip as we endure this life. We've been left with the joy of the resurrection and the Holy Spirit. And so in verse 21, he goes over his return to his followers again using the metaphor of childbirth. Childbirth is painful. All of us men are probably thankful that we don't have to do it. But it's the thing that causes that pain that brings forth the joy of new life. The pain of what Jesus went through has brought us new life too. And the joy of the new life brought by the resurrection in such contrast to their dejected state before that first Easter, would cause his followers to endure anything, even death, for the sake of the kingdom of God. And when we think about everything we have in Christ, um, the eternal promise he's given us that adds such flavours to the good things we enjoy in this world, the fact that Jesus gave himself for us, came back from death, ascended to heaven to prepare an eternal home for us and guides us through life towards that end by his Holy Spirit. It's a massive statement, isn't it, about just how much each of us matters to God. But when we talk about a joy that can't be taken away, a joy in any circumstances. There's a danger, perhaps, isn't there, of it sounding trite, unrealistic, a bit, perhaps, like the ending of Monty Python's Life of Brian where uh, somebody sings Always look on the bright side of life while they're being crucified. Feel free to whistle it now. But this is a joy that's more than just the emotion of happiness, because the reality of life is that emotions come and go. But it's a contentment that's tied to our relationship with God and to our certainty and security in God and not to our circumstances. And so it's a joy that we can have not only when we think about the great things we have in life, the great things that God has given us, but also when we're facing life's darker moments too. John Calvin offers us a clue about how to cultivate this when he writes, We can experience joy in adverse circumstances by holding God's benefits in such esteem that the recognition of them and meditation on them will overcome All sorrow. And it's this holding God's benefits in esteem, meditating on them in love and gratitude, seeking strength from the Spirit who dwells in us, knowing that the fulfillment and the eternal promise that we have in Christ is so much greater than anything we have in this world that should help to keep us in times like this and when we face temptation and the grass seems so much greener in a life not lived God's way. And in verses 23 and 24 there's another very great promise that helps us in all of this. In these two verses, and in also in verses 25 and 26, Jesus is telling us that we have a direct access to the throne room of God the Father. You will no longer ask me anything, he tells us, and in verse 26, I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. That doesn't mean he's no longer involved. We know that Jesus intercedes for us all the time. But what it's telling us is that we can now go to the Father for ourselves. This is because of all that Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. We remember that back in the Old Testament days, only the high priest of the people could approach God once a year, enter into the Holy of Holies, and then with severe precautions in place. But when Jesus died, the great curtain separating the people from the holy place of God was torn in two. The Holy of Holies now open to us all. And so Hebrews chapter 4 tells us this. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in times of need. The way is open for us to take all the needs we ha- and concerns that we're feeling now and at every other time to the Father. Let's not Suffer them on our own. Let's get God involved and be walking in his strength. Jesus twice talks to us in this passage about asking in his name. That doesn't make this a magic formula to get anything we want. But it does mean that as we ask through him for what is right in his eyes and according to his will then he will answer. And so, as this world struggles with the coronavirus, would we be praying that God will use this shaking of our society to draw people back to himself? And let's be asking as well how we, as a church body, as individuals, can show people to him. In this time, show his love to people. Would we pray as well just to reflect on him, to know him better? In verse 25, when Jesus refers to a time when he will speak plainly to his followers about the Father, consensus among commentators tends to be Um, that this is referring to the coming of the Spirit following Pentecost, that through, uh, through whom God teaches us and convicts us about what is right. Back in John 14, Jesus said that the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of all that I have said. And so we have Christ's great promise of his return and resurrection, the joy that we can have in all circumstances, the promise of prayer in his name and of being taught by the Holy Spirit. But in verse 27, there's a sort of caveat or condition that lets all these things happen. And it's this. The Father loves you, Jesus said, because you have loved me. And have believed that I came from God. And so to love Christ is to firstly not sit on the fence about Him, but to receive Him. Jesus says that He knocks at the door of our hearts. It's up to us to open the door. And then to value Him above all else. And so the disciples have stopped scratching their heads. They've said, OK, great, you're talking in plain language now, none of these metaphors, we've sussed it, we can stop asking you stuff, we believe you came from God, we're all good. Jesus, of course, very soberly reminds them that within a few short hours, they will all fall away from him. But see, he knew this when he spoke to them about seeing them again after the resurrection. He knew this when he spoke about the Holy Spirit, about their direct access to the Father. He sees their failure, but he also sees their restoration and the great works they will go on to do through him. And God sees our failures too. But as long as we keep coming back to him in repentance, that's not the end of our story. Either. Take heart, Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, but I have overcome the world. He's overcome the world because he's overcome the sin and evil that we let loose when we fell away from God. And so he leaves us with this eternal promise that life is more than this. Life is More than what we're looking at now, we'll come through it and after this life there's the even greater promises of eternity. So what does it mean to us now that Christ has overcome the world? What will you be praying for during this time? Take those questions away with you and think about them.